Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the delightful and also challenging aspects of living in another culture with another language is not simply the the challenge and the joy of learning the other language, but also learning communication patterns. Because it's one thing to know the language. It's another thing to know how people communicate and to understand the communication patterns. And while this is a generalization, this is a stereotype, generalizations exist for a reason. Stereotypes exist for a reason. And it is true, and I can attest to the fact, that North Americans tend to communicate more directly and Latin Americans tend to communicate more indirectly. And that, even if they're speaking the same language, sometimes produces difficulties of communications. Sometimes the Latin Americans will go away saying, those North Americans are so rude. They're, they're so impolite. And then the North Americans will sometimes go away saying, I'm pretty sure he wanted to say something to me, but after an hour, I'm really not sure what it was. And so the directness... Uh, sometimes comes across as rude. The indirectness sometimes, sometimes comes across as, as confusing. Now, if we could look at Jesus' parables, and we have taken them not in any certain order, but in general, we started with ones that were toward the beginning, and now we're moving more towards the end of his life and his ministry. And what we find is, 
if we could say it this way, Jesus began his parables in a Latin American sort of communication style. They were indirect. They were confusing. They were difficult to understand. And we went away from them saying, what did he mean by that? And that was part of the purpose of them. But now we're getting towards the end of his life. And now his communication style, if we can say this, although it's anachronistic, it was more North American. He was using parables in a frontal assault at times on those who were opposing him and the kingdom. Now, let's see how this parable fits into the context of this chapter. And you'll see how much Jesus is really provoking the religious leaders. At the beginning of this chapter, we have what's called the triumphal entry. And in the triumphal entry, Jesus rode into Jerusalem during a feast time when it was crowded, and he rode in as a king. And he allowed, for the first time in his ministry, for people to praise him publicly. And he did this right in front of the religious leaders. And then he cursed the fig tree. Well, no, actually, before he did that, he did something even more provocative. He went into the temple, and he found that they had set up a market in the temple, and he drove the the marketers out of the temple. And then when they asked him about what he was doing, and asked him about the praise that they were offering to him, he quoted scripture. And then he cursed the fig tree, and that's a very unusual activity on Jesus' part. If we, if we can call that a miracle, it's the only destructive miracle that Jesus did. But it was symbolic because the fig tree represented Israel, and the fig tree was unfruitful. And Jesus said about this unfruitful fig tree that it would never bear fruit again, and he was speaking about unfruitful Israel. And that disaster was about to come on Israel. Then the temple authorities challenged him about his authority. He said, whoa, where are you getting all this authority to go around doing this sort of thing? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist, was he from God or not? And they were silent because he put them in a dilemma because either way they answered, they would have had trouble, either with the crowds or with Jesus, and so they were silent. So he silenced them publicly. And then he told three parables. We're going to look at the second one today, but the first parable that he told was about two sons. And this was, this was very provocative because he said, there were two sons, and the father gave them commands, and the first son, first son said, I'll do it. But then he didn't do it. And the second son said, I'm not going to do that. But then eventually he went and did it. And Jesus said, who was the obedient son? And they said it was the second one. And then he applied it very, very directly to them. And he said, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom before you all, you religious leaders. Because you're the ones who say, yes, 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 but you don't do what the Father says. And then he told this parable. And this is the parable of the day. So you see the context here. This is a context of provocation. This is the context of conflict here. And so you see how now Jesus is using parables not in an indirect way where we go away and say, what did he mean by that? But the the meaning is all too clear as we will find out. Now, this parable is based on the parable that we already read, but I'm going to refer to it again. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, you hear this parable of the vineyard, and it goes like this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds and they, that, they, that they rain no rain upon it. So that's, the, that's the, the parable of the Old Testament on which Jesus is basing this parable. And what was the situation? It was a vineyard. The owner of the vineyard did everything he could to make that vineyard fruitful. But it wasn't fruitful. It produced grapes that were not useful for the fruit of the vine. And so, he said, what am I going to do? I'm going to abandon it. I'm going to let people overrun it. I'm going to let it be destroyed. Then in verse 7, we have the interpretation. It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so now we have the interpretation of Isaiah's parable. What's the parable about? It's about Israel and Judah. They are the vineyard of the Lord. And what is the fruit that God was looking for from his vineyard? He was looking for righteousness. He was looking for justice. And instead, he got Bloodshed. Now, let's fast forward and let's go to Jesus' parable and see how these parables relate to each other. Because, like in the Isaiah parable, in this parable of Jesus, he emphasizes that the Master did absolutely everything necessary for this vineyard to be productive. Unlike in the parable in Isaiah, this parable talks about a vineyard that was productive. So the vineyard actually, with a new twist on this parable, the vineyard is being productive. But there's a problem with the vineyard, not with the vineyard itself, but with those who are tending to the vineyard, the tenants of the vineyard. It's producing its fruit all right, but then when the master sends his servants to receive from the produce of that vineyard, they refuse. And not only do they refuse to give the the master what is his due, because it is his vineyard, they, they behave more and more treacherously and unaccountably treacherously toward this good master that has set them up in this amazing vineyard. And what do they do? Well... They took the servants, and it says they did three things to the servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. And then the master sends more servants, and it says they did the same thing to them. And then the master decides to do something that he thinks, well, surely, surely this will work, because... Uh, They didn't respect the servants, but if I send my own son, surely they'll recognize his authority and they will respect him. But these tenants, by the way, this this is a parable that moves from the realistic to the outrageous. And now we're moving into the outrageous. These tenants come up with this plot and say, this is the heir. So if we take out the heir then this vineyard will become ours. 
And so they do three things. They take the son, they throw him outside, and they kill him. That's the parable. And then Jesus turns to the audience there, and the audience consisted of the chief priests and the scribes. Now, we have met the Pharisees in some of these parables. And the Pharisees, as we saw, were the strictest of the strict when it came to obedience to the law. But there was another group, and that, were, that was the group of the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were not so strict. They were the priestly caste. They were the ones descended from the Levites in the Old Testament. And they were the ones who were in charge of the temple activities and the sacrifices that went on in the temple. So that's the audience, the principal audience here, although the Pharisees are mentioned later. But the principal audience has to do with those who are the temple servants, the custodians of the temple, the chief priests and their scribes. And Jesus addresses the question to them. He tells this parable of this outrageous, treacherous behavior on the part of these servants. And then he asks them a question. In verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they react like any of us would react. They, they are aghast at such treachery. That these tenants would act that way to such a, an amazing master of the vineyard. And they, they just blurt out impulsively and they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Good answer. That's exactly what the master would do. And they were compelled to say that. The story led them to say that. But little did they know that they had just condemned themselves. There's a parable in the Old Testament that works very much like this parable. There was a king, and his name was David. And God had given him everything to be a successful king, and in fact, he was a successful king. And in general, he was a man after God's own heart. But David, who had everything, one day saw a beautiful woman, and he took her. And she happened to be the wife of one of his most faithful soldiers. And he took her for himself. And then he had that husband killed in battle. Sometime later, Nathan, who was a prophet, went to King David because he thought he had gotten away with this. And he told a parable. And he told a parable about a rich man who had a visitor come and he wanted to make a feast for this rich man, or for his, his friend, his guest. And instead of taking from all of his flocks and all of his vast possessions, he went to his poor neighbor who had one ewe lamb. And he took that man's ewe lamb who was like a daughter to him and he killed that ewe lamb and he had the feast for his guest. And when David heard that story, he burned with indignation. And he said, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan said, you are that man. That's how this parable works. They were indignant, and rightly so, at the behavior of those wicked tenants. And they cried out, he will, he will take the vineyard from them, and He will give it to those who will give its fruit to due season. 
And in order to point out how they had just condemned themselves, he said, Have you never read from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you never read that? This is an interesting verse to bring up, because it seems at first to have nothing to do with this parable. It's talking about a stone being rejected. The, the parable doesn't talk anything about stones, does it? Except perhaps the stones in the fence that he built up around the vineyard. But it's not about a rejected stone. It's about rejected servants, and it's about a rejected son. But there may be a play on words here in Hebrew and Aramaic, because the word for son and the word for stone, they're very similar sounding. And that may be the link here. The the parable is about a a rejected servants and about a rejected son. And he says, have you never read about the rejected stone? Sounds like son. He says, because that rejected stone that was rejected by the authorities, the builders, the ones who should have known a good stone from a bad stone, or those who should know uh, what a stone will serve, in the, in the construction of the house, those experts, those authorities, those who were in charge of the building, they took that stone, they rejected it, but the Lord made that stone the cornerstone. The stone that holds the whole building together. The stone that keeps the whole building intact and up. Have you never read that? And then he turns to them very directly and he applies the parable. And he says, therefore I tell you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He used almost their same words, didn't he? What did they say? They said that the master would come and he would put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And he says, you, you just spoke about yourselves. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And then he went on in verse 44 to talk about the destructive effects of that stone. Do you remember? That stone is constructive, isn't it? It's the stone that holds the whole building together. But if you reject that stone, that stone will be destructive. He says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. And it says in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They got it. That this was directed against them. And if it's directed against them, now we can fill in some of the blanks that are pretty obvious by this point. If we look back at the Old Testament... We find that God established His people Israel, and we see that that's the the symbol of the vineyard. And His people turned away from Him, and He sent to them His servants, the prophets. And those prophets came, and they they called on the people to go back to God and to render the fruit that God had, had required of them and provided for them to make. But what did they do to the prophets? Read the Old Testament and you'll find that oftentimes 
They stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets. They imprisoned the prophets. And then at the end of this long line of sending servants and then more servants and being rebuffed constantly, there's one left to send. And it's the Son. And as you know, well actually we see it even here in verse 46. It says, they knew. They knew that He had spoken this parable against them. And it says this, verse 46, ironic and tragic, although they were seeking to arrest Him, they feared the crowds because they held Him to be a prophet. Isn't that amazing? What did they do? Rather than recoiling in horror, saying, may it never be. Jesus, what do you mean that this applies to us? May it never be, if we have done something wrong, if we have rejected servants of God in the past, may it never be that we would do so again, much less His Son. But what do they do? They try to seize the Son. But they can't. Because the crowds held Him to be a prophet. But as you know, if you go on reading, not many chapters from here, you will find that they were able to affect their purpose. They were able to seize the Son. And it's interesting that in Matthew's version of this parable, which appears in other Gospels, the order is a bit different. In the other Gospels, they take the Son and they kill Him and they throw Him out. But in this Gospel, they take the Son, they throw Him out, and then they kill Him. Which is actually what happened to Jesus. They seized Him, and then they took Him outside the city. And on a hill outside the city, they killed Him. Now, Instead of, instead of repenting, they fulfilled the very parable that Jesus is speaking against them. That's the tragedy of this parable. But if we go back to this quotation from verse 42, and verse 42 from the quotation from Psalm 118, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What's marvelous about what's happened here? Well, it's certainly not marvelous that the leaders of God's people would reject God's Son when He comes. That's not marvelous. But what is marvelous is that not only was that their wicked doing, but it was also the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing to send His Son that He might bear the sins of His people. And it was also the Lord's doing to take this one who had been rejected by the authorities and to make him the capstone, the cornerstone, the one that holds the whole kingdom, the whole house together. And so we have here a reference to what the Lord was going to do in the resurrection. Yes, the son was going to be rejected, but God was going to make that son the cornerstone of all. Now, Peter took up this this idea in First Peter chapter 2. And he, he plays with this, this idea of the cornerstone and shows us more what God is doing with Jesus, the rejected one. He says, as you come to Him, First Peter 2.4, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying that we can participate in this now. If, if Christ has been rejected by the leaders, God has made Him the cornerstone of a whole new temple, and that's the image here, that we can be added to that 
as living stones. What happened to the temple? The temple in 70 AD was demolished by the Romans. Then is there no temple for God to live in since that temple has been demolished? The answer is yes, indeed there is. What is that temple where God dwells now? It is those who have faith in that stone that was rejected whom God made the cornerstone. And Peter says, you are added to that house on which Christ, or built on Christ. And then he says that the purpose of that is to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, For behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, this stone is the, the dividing line. And our response to this stone depend, uh, determines what this stone will be to us. Will this stone be our cornerstone? Will it be that on which our lives are built? Will be, we be part of that house that God is making? Well, it, w- it will be. He will be that for us if we believe. But if we do not believe, it says that this cornerstone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so it puts it on us and says, how will you respond to this stone that God has made the cornerstone of what He is doing in the world? Now we have two images, don't we? And we've seen this with the parables. We've seen this mixing of metaphors and this mixing of images. What are the two images? We have the image of a vineyard. What is a vineyard supposed to do? It's supposed to produce what? Fruit. And we have the image of a temple. What is supposed to happen in a temple? In a temple, there are supposed to be acceptable sacrifices offered. So if a vineyard is functioning properly, it produces fruit. If a temple is functioning properly, it produces right sacrifices. Now, the way today's parable functions is by getting people to condemn themselves. That's how it functions. The the religious leaders, the, the temple custodians, heard this parable about the tenants and they said, that's terrible, that those tenants would would kill the servants and then kill the son and not give the master its fruit. And they condemned themselves because they were doing the same thing. But let's be careful, folks, Because the parable still has that same function today. Because now we look at these chief priests and scribes and we rightly say, that's terrible. How could they? How could they enjoy God's benefits and enjoy God's blessings but not heed God's word? That's terrible. And we need to be careful that in saying that, we don't condemn ourselves. If we are God's vineyard through faith in Christ, then let's produce fruit. If we are God's temple through faith in Christ built on that cornerstone, then let's bring acceptable sacrifices to God. If not, this parable that trapped these religious leaders into condemning themselves will also trap us. But if we, through Christ, 
produce fruit. If we produce these acceptable sacrifices, then we will be fulfilling the purposes that God has had for His people from all the ages. Now, how can we produce acceptable sacrifices? Well, it says in 1 Peter 2.5, it says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice. Jesus is the true vineyard, the true Israel, the one who gives the perfect fruit. He's the only way that we, as part of the temple or as part of the vineyard, can present acceptable sacrifices and the fruit that God requires. Let's pray. Our God, we see how these religious leaders enjoyed the benefits of being ostensibly part of your people, and yet they spurned your word, and they spurned your Son. And we pray, O God, for us that we would not be trapped by this parable as well, that we would not bask in the benefits that you give to us while we ignore your word and your purposes for us, But rather, we pray, O God, that we would come to You through Jesus and that You would produce in us through Him that fruit, that fruit of the Spirit, that fruit in the lives of other people, and that You would produce in us those acceptable sacrifices, those righteous sacrifices that You've always longed for and desired from Your people and now have made a way for us to give through the acceptable sacrifice, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray in His name. Amen.